Thanks, man. Y'all get it for Sean. Well, good evening. If we haven't met yet, my name is Rudy. I, I get to be here, get to be on staff. We are continuing our series through uh, the book of James. I have read James uh, often, over or multiple times over the last 13 years of following Jesus. And I, it's just every single time I get into this text and into this book, there's just something that just almost feels like it wakes up or like, a, like an alarm bell that goes off in my heart, in, in my soul. And I, to be frank with you, like I've been grateful for that as we've gone through this text. Um, I, I think that there's times where as you read your Bible and, and, and as we open it up on Thursdays and as you get together in a group with your connection group to think, how do we apply the text? How do we live into this uh, together? How do we follow Jesus together in Madison as we kind of circle around the, the scripture? But there should be moments that uh, both comfort us and challenge us. And, and I think tonight, honestly, this text uh, does a little bit of the work of both as we jump into this topic that James is bringing us in on wisdom. Wisdom. And before I go too far, I just want to tell you a story about a seven-year-old in 1999. That was a long time ago. Some of you unborn at that point. Um, so seven years old, 1999, there was a young boy who saw, uh, you know, the little placard by a pool that says three feet, no diving. You ever seen one of those? You realize that like that's there because someone dove in there because it, at some point, right, that someone said, I'm going to dive into this, even though it says it's only only three feet. Now, that was clearly written for everyone else but this seven-year-old in the year of 1999. No, no one knew who, who put that sign up. They didn't know that this seven-year-old was full of grace in the way in which he could dive into and pierce the water. I'm getting some head nods. You get what that's like. And so I dove into the pool, and uh, a couple things happened really quickly. Um, immediately my head hit the concrete because <laughs> of course it did because it was three feet and I was seven taller than three feet at the age of seven years old right about right so could crack like right on my head in fact if you ever see me reading honestly like I'll read like this sometimes and it's honestly because like I actually think I messed up my neck when I was seven years old in this pool but that's not like the, like I, I, I have an immediate head injury you pop up out of the water and you're kind of screaming but it's a public pool so you're like okay is it is it that he's happy or that he's sad or is that water on his face or is it tears like who could say so I swim over to the ledge to like make it very clear that these are tears on my face and I you know you can like push yourself up on the ledge in the side of a pool right all right so I do that and my hand slips and I go crack right on my chin wind up in the emergency room seven years old 1999 if you want to see the scar on my chin that's weird um so don't do that but like but there's there's still a scar right under my chin, uh, under, underneath there. Here's the thing, here's the thing, here's the thing, here's the thing. I, I had all the information that I needed to make a decision in that moment, um, but I didn't have wisdom. <laughs> now, I was seven, so that's like a piece of it. But there's this really important distinction to make before we go so far into this text that we have to, have to break apart, that there is a difference between knowledge and knowing things and wisdom and, and being wise. I had knowledge. I, I didn't have wisdom. I'll just go here with me for just a second. Like when you think of someone who's wise, like what do you picture? 
Do you picture like Gandalf or Albus Dumbledore, like a media archetype? Do you think of, if you're like a Wheel of Time person, like the Aes Sedai and like the Amberlin seat? No one in this room, Wheel of Time? Okay, that's fine. Uh, Gandalf then. Uh, so old, regal man or woman just like kind of always having like the little pithy, smart saying, right? And like that becomes this archetype of wisdom. But what if I told you, just suspend presupposition with me here for a second. What if I told you that like you actually can be known as someone who is wise? What if I told you, actually, I'm quite convinced of this. I'm convinced that the will of God for every single person in this room is for you to walk in wisdom. Convinced of it. Like beyond the shadow of a doubt. What if James is actually laying out for his original audience and for us a way that we could be known and walk in wisdom. James is saying in this text that there is a way that you can be wise for your sake and for the sake of those who are around you. Now, please, again, I'm gonna reiterate this because I know I've gotta do some work here with presupposition. I'm not saying that there's a way, or I'm not saying that James is saying that there's a way for you to be Bible trivia champion, okay? Like that's not what he's saying here when he's talking about wisdom. He's not saying, here's how you get more knowledge to just live in your head. He's not saying, here's a way for you to have a cute, pithy statement for every single thing that you go across. We all know people who know a lot and who are not wise. We all know people, or maybe people, like, like who know that we know a lot, but are not mature. Just to pull off here for a second, I get so nervous sometimes um, that spiritual maturity as it comes to following Jesus is often conflated with how much do you know? That it's like, okay, how much do you know? That's how much, that, that's, that's not it. I think one of the, like, like just, just, to, just to hear my heart on this, I love knowledge and I love learning. You can come through any time that you want and pull any book that you'd like off like my library, either here or at home. I love books, I love resources. We're one of the most well-resourced generations of Christ followers ever, period. I love those things. And I'm nervous sometimes that we're educated way beyond our obedience. Like that the amount that we can know and the way in which we live simply don't line up. Lots of knowledge, little practice. Lots of knowledge, little activity. Lives in my head, doesn't shape my hands or my heart. Like it can be things like this even where you're like, okay, Rudy, I've heard this before. And there's like this, this craving for the thing that is new instead of boring down all the more fully, I had to learn this over the last decade, boring down even more fully into the things that I already know so that I might know them more fully and deeper than I'd ever imagined. Not just trying to get caught up in the tyranny of the novel next new thing, but returning to the things that I already knew were true so that I might not be educated beyond my obedience, so I might not have a bunch of knowledge and no wisdom. It's a recipe for self-critique, it's a recipe for disaster, it's a recipe for hypocrisy. Maturity does not equate to knowing more. Knowing more does not equate to wisdom. Wisdom is not simply seen in what you know. James is gonna make the argument that it's seen in the way that we live. That the wisdom that we follow, in fact, forms the way that we live. 
Now, again, I can say, like, you can live wisely, and you might say that actually sounds boring. <laughs> like, like, that sounds a little bit dry. Like, I'm not trying to be Albus Dumbledore, right? Like, I get that. I, I feel that. And, and I think that's because it likely hasn't settled that wisdom and knowledge aren't the same thing. I'm hoping that we get there by the end of our time. Because wisdom will lead us to live a life that is not only growing in a confidence with our relationship with God, but also is compelling as it relates to presenting Jesus and representing Jesus to others who are around us. So that's what we're gonna see as we get into this text in James as he teaches us how to live in wisdom. He's laying out that the wisdom you follow is seen in and forms the way that you live. So I've got two goals tonight. You can write these down on a paper. If you want, top your notes if you'd like. We're gonna see what wisdom looks like and then we're gonna talk about how you can get it, what it looks like and how you can get it. We good? All right, cool, let's go. All right, what does wisdom look like? James 3.13, who among you is wise in understanding? By their good conduct, by his good conduct, he should show that his works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. James is asking a dividing question, in part targeted to the teachers and the leaders of the community he's writing to, but also to all of the people who would hear this. Who among you is wise and has understanding? How can I know, perhaps a better question would be, how can I know if I am wise or if I am understanding? James's answer to that is simple. How can you know if you're wise or understanding? How can you know if someone else is wise or understanding? His answer would be simply four words. Look at their life. Look at your life. Look at that conduct. Referencing back to the works that flow from faith. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, end of James chapter 2. Not that it is works that earn you salvation, but rather by faith, through grace, you are saved into Christ. And now as you follow Jesus, those good works that come out of you, the changed life that you live, actually puts that faith on display. James is saying that is a wise life. And he's saying that there's character qualities to it. Look, look at this. Look at the qualification James uses for this. He says that their works are done in the gentleness, your translation may say humility, that comes from wisdom. That wisdom actually produces a character in uh, the people who are wise. Wisdom's got some meat on its bones. Wisdom is gentle, humble, meek. Wisdom is strength and knowledge with restraint and focus. James is saying that wisdom isn't simply something that is heard, but wisdom is something that is seen. That you're not considered wise because you've got something to, to say. You're considered wise because you have a way that you live. So what does this wisdom look like? James actually starts by articulating first what wisdom doesn't look like. Actually, he articulates what false wisdom looks like. This is where James pulls out the knife and starts to open us up through the text and expose the type of wisdom that we choose to follow. James gives us a framework for how to evaluate the wisdom that we're being formed by and the wisdom that we are living out as he talks about two different types of wisdoms in the text. Verse 15, if you look at it, 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 James articulates that there is a type of wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. If you have a NIV Bible, it actually puts the word wisdom in quotations as if it's trying to communicate to us, this is not a true wisdom. This is a so-called wisdom. You could say this is a false wisdom. Verse 17 articulates a different wisdom, that there's a wisdom from above, a wisdom from God, a true wisdom. 
See, James gives us an evaluative framework for both types of wisdom so that we, the hearers, can actually look in on our lives and understand and answer the question, what wisdom we are living by. Is it a false wisdom that's earthly? Is it a true wisdom that's from above? And James starts by, by talking about identifying what false wisdom looks like. Look at verse 14. If you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart. He's gonna open us up. Don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. It is earthly, concerned with the things that are right now. Unspiritual, concerned with the things and the passions of the body. Demonic, concerned with ultimately destroying you. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder in every evil practice. All right, if you're taking notes, you can write down these three words that create a framework for understanding the wisdom that you may be walking in. These three words, central, internal, and external. So central, what is the guiding center of the wisdom that you are living out following? Internal, what is the character that is formed in you by that wisdom? And external, what is the character felt through you by others as a result of that wisdom. Central, internal, external. James does an anatomy of false and true wisdom as we get into it. So let's take this in reverse. James talks about this false wisdom and he ends in verse 16 with what it produces externally, the character that is felt, what is felt by others who walk in this false wisdom. And he he articulates it in verse 16 that there is disorder and every evil practice. This is the character that is felt by a false wisdom that we might follow. The result of following this kind of wisdom is disorder in our lives, disorder in our relationships with others, with ourselves, with God, disorder in the way you may look at your time or your money or your gifts, disorder in the way that you think that other people look at you, disorder in the way that you look at other people. Disorder and division mark the lives of the person that follows or is formed by this false wisdom. Uh, Disorder in every evil practice, everything that leads to this disorder, every choice that breaks a relationship or feeds hypocrisy or bends morality or attempts to validate breaking the law or breaking some uh, commitment that you made that divides people apart, that breaks relationship or breaks individuals, that practices favoritism of one group over another. All of this comes from a false wisdom. Externally, that's what it produces. Externally, that's what's felt by the character that comes from it. And what is produced externally flows from what is produced internally. So character felt comes from the character that's formed. And verse 14 lays out what's produced internally by this false wisdom. Bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart. Is there any envy or selfish ambition in your heart. Let's just play with these for a second. Envy is the comparison of yourself to others in any way and finding yourself either excelling or lacking. Envy looks at someone else and says, I want what they have. And because I don't have what they have, 
I am somehow less not enough. I, I despise them for it. I resent them for it. It, it, can, it can turn very violent internally where you start to say, I just, I suck. I'm not worthwhile. It starts to create an incredibly disruptive and destructive self-view of yourself. It's so interesting, by the way, that uh, Jesus, when he articulates the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor, what? As you love yourself? Isn't that interesting that Jesus would want us to understand that we are to value also what God values, which is us, that there's actually a value to that here, but envy causes us to sometimes look at ourselves and say worthless, where envy causes us sometimes to look at others and sort of what uh, Jared was talking about last week, um, out of an insecurity and an envy for what they have, actually look at others and speak to them in such a way where we would tear them down or we would dunk on them because the insecurity inside of us is so palatable and so strong that we can't help but bring someone else down to where we are. Envy and selfish ambition, the constant shameless elevation of self to get what we believe that we should have. Could sometimes look like entitlement. And if it if you get it, it can look like pride. If you fail, it can look like shame. This is the internal character form. So externally, disorder and evil. Internally, envy and, central, and selfish ambition. But what is central to this false wisdom? If you were to sum up anything, like if you were to sum up the ethos or, or like kind of the emotional center, the guiding center of a false wisdom, of all false wisdom, uh, what would it be? This is, by the way, the question that James is going to answer for both types of wisdom. What's in the middle? What's the guiding center? A metaphor that's commonly used. What is on the throne? What is the guiding center of this false wisdom? The central claim of false wisdom is this. I am on the throne of my life. I'm at the middle. I'm at the center. Uh, it's all about me. Life is all about me. I will follow me. I'm the point. I live by my truth. What I want is ultimate. So I ultimately live a comparative life. I look at others with, with uh, the character that's formed that is envious because I'm constantly judging and evaluating other people against me and where I'm at. I, I, I judge others and I judge myself based on the selfish ambition because I'm discontent ultimately with where I am because as I compare myself to others who are around me, they're either way too far above me and I don't feel good enough or they're below me so that I feel good about myself. It, it creates this context where we believe or we start to, to think that we are on the thrones of our lives. I'm the middle. It makes a relationship with God and others feel calculated, transactional, disappointing, destructive, depressing, and disordered. This is the wisdom, the way of living that James says is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And he goes on to say, thankfully, that there is another way. That this does not have to be the wisdom that we walk in with the central focus of me being the most important thing that leads to envy and selfish ambition, that leads to disorder and destruction all around me, either in overt or covert ways. He says there's another way. Verse 17, 
But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, and then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruit, unwavering, without pretense, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. So remember our framework. Central, internal, external. Guiding center, character formed, character felt. Let's run it back, but this time, let's start at the center. So if the center of false wisdom is me, what's at the middle, what's on the throne of of true wisdom? This is the Sunday school answer. You can say it with me. Jesus, right? Okay. Jesus is. If false wisdom that leads to envy and selfish ambition and disorder in my relationship and my life has me on the throne of my life, the true wisdom has Christ on the throne of my life. Colossians 2 verse 3 gives this incredible picture of Christ by saying that in him are all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In the Proverbs, there's this tendency that the author has to personify wisdom, to articulate that wisdom is not just a set of ideas, but is actually seen in a type of person. That that personification of wisdom actually aligns with the life of Christ, who is true wisdom on display. You can say it like this, Christ is perfect wisdom. Christ is a perfect way, and if we are to live in his wisdom, it means that he is at the middle, the center, the throne of our lives, not us. So you just follow this down to the internal condition of someone who has Christ at the center of their life. What's internal for them? If Christ is at the center, if he's the guiding center, what is the character formed as we follow this pure wisdom? Look at verse 17. This is the character of that person. They love peace. They love peace. They pursue it. They hunger for it. They want it more than anything. This experience of peace in relationship with others. They are gentle. Talked about that at the beginning as being a mark of wisdom. They are compliant. That's an interesting word because it sounds like a legal term. Um, this idea of compliance, you, you, you could write this down. It's this idea of being aligned. They are aligned. Aligned to, to what? First, this idea of compliance is not like trying to be like a doormat, which sometimes it can feel like Christians are supposed to be. That's not the invitation here at all. He's saying you are aligned to Christ and to his wisdom. It means when someone comes to you, like lovingly and carefully and caringly to try to help you love and follow Jesus, you align yourself with the way of Jesus. It means that when you are convicted by the Spirit of God of sin, it means you align with that way. You comply with what aligns to the character of Christ. They're merciful, full of mercy, wanting to see mercy. They are unwavering. This idea of being steadfast, of being resilient. I think this resilience is one of the most necessary things that every single person in this room who desires to follow Jesus for the next 40, 50, 70 years, however long you live, needs. I don't know that there's a, a greater need. I mean, I think there, it, there are several things that we need, but this will be one of those things that is so crucial, so essential. Even as I was thinking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, kind of in the wake of Easter, there's this incredible chapter 
1 Corinthians 15 that talks all about the resurrection, you should go read it. It talks about the, the, the reality of Jesus encountering people after his resurrection and what it means that Christ has risen and what that means for us into the future, that as Christ was risen, we'll rise with him also. And it ends with this incredible set of verses in 1 Corinthians 15 where it says, death, where's your victory? Hell, where's your sting? Basically saying that because Christ got up, you'll never be defeated by either of those things. And then the very very last verse of it is this, is this little word that says, therefore, as if Paul is saying, I wrote all of that on the resurrection to tell you this. And he says, therefore, because Christ is risen and because you'll rise with him, Christian, therefore, be steadfast, be immovable, always pursuing the way of the Lord, knowing that your labor, your following after Christ, your love for others, your insert the blank here as you follow the wisdom of Jesus is not in vain. Uh, this is beautiful reality of the unwavering, steadfast, resilient character that is formed by the wisdom of Christ at the center of our lives. And they're without pretense. They're not pretentious. It's another way of saying that they're humble. Just think about this. Character form, peace, gentleness, aligned to the way of God, merciful, resilient, humble. This is not a comparative life. This is a content life. It is a compelling life. Who does that sound like? Sunday school answer again. It sounds like Jesus. That as Jesus is the guiding center of your life, his wisdom forms the way that we live. So if he's the guiding center and this is the character formed in us, what is the character felt through us? Look at that last verse, verse 18. It's righteousness and peace. Peace. Not striving, not trying to get a leg up by manipulating a relationship, not trying to crush someone else, not trying to sneak your way in to be the saviors, not, none of that. It's peace. Peace. Let me teach you something real quick about peace because I, I find people uh, mix this up sometimes. Peace is not the absence of chaos. Peace is not the absence of pain. If peace required that there were no disruptive things going on in your life, then no one would ever know peace. There would be no way of you ever having a prolonged experience of peace because there are things that are painful and things that are chaotic around us all of the time. You do not experience peace by simply removing all of those things from your life. Peace is not marked by absence. No, peace is marked by presence. Peace is marked by the presence, not of a thing, not of a condition, but peace is marked by the presence of a person, and his name is Jesus. Just think about Psalm 23 for just a moment. Maybe many of you have heard this before. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down by still waters. He leads me, you, you, you're familiar with this. He leads me down paths of righteousness for his name's sake. But, but then maybe, maybe you've heard this before. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. That's witness and comfort in the presence of shadow and death. That's not saying, hey, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Jesus, when I get through that valley of the shadow of death, when I get out of my chaos, when I get out of my, when I, Jesus, you stay over there, and when I get out of my condition, then I'll know peace. That, that's not what the Bible teaches. 
That's not what Jesus teaches. It's this language of saying, hey, even as you walk through chaos and death and shadow, I am with you. A rod and staff, they come for you. It goes on. It says, it says hey, I, I'll prepare a table for you. Where? In the presence of your enemies. I won't wait for your enemies to go away. I won't wait for the things that are painful or hard in your life to go away. I'll set a table right there in the middle of it, and I'll sit down and dine with you. In fact, I'll anoint your head with oil, the psalm goes on to say, to say you belong here. You're marked as someone who belongs here. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to earn your spot. You have a seat at the table. I set the table up so you could be with me. And in fact, I'll mark your head with oil, and your cup will overflow. That idea of the cup overflowing, when, when someone would invite you over at this period of time, as the psalm was written, to, to, to sit at their table, they wouldn't let you know that it was time for you to leave by saying, hey, it's time for you to leave. That would be what we would do, maybe. I don't know, Midwest goodbyes can go on for a very long time. Um, but here's what they did. They, they just stopped refilling the cup. They would just like let the cup go empty. And Jesus, through this psalm, is teaching us, hey, I'll set that table for you in the presence of your enemies, in the middle of your chaos. I'll say, you sit with me here. So you know that I'm with you right there, right in the middle of it. And I'll tell you what, you never have to leave. I'll make sure that the cup overflows forever. There will never be an invitation for you that it's time for you to get up and get out of my presence because I am with you. Surely goodness and mercy will follow after me all the days of my life. Why? Because Christ is with me. Peace doesn't occur. Peace doesn't come when every piece of chaos leaves your life. It comes when the one who is our wisdom is the center of your life. When he is in the middle on the throne, when he is the guiding center of our life, our lives become marked by peace. Even though the things around us might not be peaceful, the reality of our relationship between us and God actually becomes the peace that we hold onto as we enter into things that feel chaotic and shadowy and death and all of these things that would feel like they would be enemies against our life and against our soul. He says, I am with you there. The production, the, the reality of the central, internal, external, this peace leads to a confidence in our relationship with Jesus and actually produces a life that is ultimately compelling where it's like you've got all these things going on and, and, and there's this peace that you're clinging to. Why is that? Well, because I know as hard as I'm trying to hold on to this peace, I know that the person who is my peace is holding on to me much, much firmer. He holds on to me in an eternal way. Jesus holds on to us far better than we'll often be able to hold on to him as his character is formed in us as we lean into and look to see him as the middle and the guiding center of our life as we walk in wisdom with Christ and we embody the character of Christ in our lives. So if that's what wisdom is, if true wisdom is seen in a life that has Jesus at the center, not me, Jesus at the center, the question is this, how do we get wisdom? I wanna give you three ways to grow in wisdom and then two words, and I'm going to take my seat. Three ways. Number one, reverence of God. Reverence of God. Understanding who God is and who you are. Those are two of the most important questions that you could possibly answer. Who is God and who am I? If you answer those two questions, honestly, it'll expose who's in the middle 
of your life? Who's on the throne of your life? Who's the guiding center of your life? Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. This idea of fear is a reverential understanding of who God is and who we are. It is a right understanding of Him and His power and his love held together in himself. When you start to recognize who you are and who God is, you will start to notice that there is a gap between you and him. As you start to understand who God is and who you are, you will start to understand that you need someone to bridge that gap for you. And that is the beginning of true wisdom. True wisdom starts with this sentence, I need Jesus. You see, he cannot be your center if he is not your savior. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says that it is from him, it is from God that you are in Christ Jesus who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. When we're saved by Jesus, he becomes our wisdom. He becomes our center. The question is, do we attend to that? He becomes the guiding center of our life. As we come back and return to this question, who am I and who is Jesus? And we continue to grow in our understanding of the depth of those questions, returning to those simple, unnew, and yet immeasurably deep questions. We lean into the reality of the wisdom of him being our Lord. So if you're not a Christian, this is where my three ways for you have to stop. The next two without Christ will just seem like ways that you need to batter your way up to God. You can't do that. No one could. That's why he sent Jesus, so that we who would trust in him might be made righteous and might be redeemed and might know him as our wisdom. So reverence for God. Number two, the word of God. I've been meditating on this text from Psalm 40 for a little bit where the psalmist writes of God, you don't delight in sacrifice and offering, but you open my ears to listen. He says, see, I have come. I delight to do your will, my God, and your instruction is deep within me. You hear that phrase, you open my ears to listen? Okay, check this out. In the Hebrew, that phrase, you open my ears to listen, is actually giving the picture of God like digging a hole into our like head. This idea of like him, him digging in to create something that wasn't there before. Or it gives this idea of him unclogging what is full of other things. It's this idea that, that, that our ears are, that what, we, what we could actually use to hear God is clogged up with other instruction, other things claiming to be wisdom that keep us from actually growing in and delighting in his will and his instruction. If the Bible is a story of God that leads us to Jesus and Jesus is our wisdom, then we need to be in the text if we are going to come to understand more and more of what it means for us to move out of the center and off the throne and for Jesus to be in the middle of our lives as our wisdom. As we come to the scripture, as if we're asking over and over again, God, open up my ears to listen so that I might know you and walk in this wisdom. So you might be at the middle. You might form this character inside of me and that peace might be felt through me. We posture ourselves to hear from God as we open up the scripture day by day, not to check a box, but to know and return to the wisdom of God with Christ at the center of our life. Reverence for God, the word of God, and third, prayer to God. James interestingly points this out across the text. He said it in chapter 1, verse 5, when he said, if you need wisdom, ask God for it. 
You, you come to him with what you need wisdom about in prayer and you ask and then you sit and you wait and you listen. I wonder if as we come to scripture and pray, God, open my ears to listen, that as we read the text, that if in prayer, we won't start to hear from him as well. That as we read the text and we consider our lives, that he would begin to help us to see in prayer and in the scripture, these two beautifully working together, that we wouldn't start to hear the voice of God so that we might live into the wisdom of God. My hope for so many of you is that you would not simply learn how to speak in prayer, but you would learn how to sit and listen in prayer. Our text this evening ends with this in James 4, 3, where he says, you don't have because you don't ask, so ask. Go and pray and ask for wisdom. Reverence, word, prayer, these are ways in which Jesus invites us to grow in this wisdom, for us to move out of the middle of our lives and for him to grow central to our lives. And over time, I want you to watch what will happen. Two words to, under, to, to, to understand what happens as you have this practice saying, I'm going to be a man or a woman that is seeking out this wisdom with Christ in the middle, a formed character and a character felt that looks like Jesus. Here, here's what will happen. As you consider the reverence of God, who he is, who you are, as you get in the word, as you get into prayer, here's what will happen. Uh, number one, just one word, you'll be exposed. areas of your life where Christ is not the center and you are will be exposed. So I'll go first. For me right now, that's entitlement. I feel entitlement in about three areas, particularly in my life, that the Lord is very kindly and very firmly exposing in me so that I might understand that those areas of entitlement are places where I'm putting me at the middle and not Jesus. He has been so kind in the last month to just, just poke at those, just bring them up over and over and go deeper and deeper into those places. I thank God for that exposure. See, every time God exposes something like that, you have a choice. You can either run and hide or you can repent and be healed. You can run and hide and try to pretend like the, I can just ignore it. I can just put it to the side, I'm gonna be fine. What ends up happening is there's this trust structure that's built in your life and the roots of it go deeper and deeper. And before you know it, it starts to touch other things and more things and hiding has actually done nothing. Running has actually done nothing. We need to stop and literally do the work of repentance where we turn and we look to the one who can heal us. I love this verse in Romans 2 verse 4. Max and I were talking about it yesterday. Where Jesus, or sorry, where Paul is writing, and he says, Don't you know the patience and the restraint and the kindness of God? That it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. You think it's his wrath, or you think it's his anger, or you think it's some other thing, but it's actually the kindness of God, where God pulls you close and says, Hey, you're my son, you're my daughter, I love you. Let's deal with this. Not, hey, you clean yourself up and then you can come into dad's house. You fix yourself up and then we can spend time together. It's saying, no, the kindness of God draws you in and says, I I'm gonna lead you to repentance in a place where you're with me. 
not to repent so you can be with. No, withness is locked in because of what Jesus has done. He says, come to me, all you who are heaven laden, I will give you you rest. Throw, throw it on to me. I can handle it. And, and we're going to deal with some of these things as you come close. It's the kindness of God that leads to repentance because it leads to your healing. So as you're exposed, repent. But as, as you follow Jesus and as you learn what it looks like for Christ to be at the middle, I, I think you will also find another word. I think that you will find encouragement. I think that as you look at your life, you will see and you will find those moments where Jesus has very kindly been like, do you see that area? Do you remember what it was like when I wasn't at the middle? And now you see what it's like now that I am? That, that's you walking in wisdom. That's you walking in my way. That's you walking out this character that's being formed in you, this character that's being felt in you. That's you living with me in the center, me in the middle, me on the throne. Oh, be encouraged. Because while you're not what you one day will be, you're not what you used to be either. That there's this beauty of the maturity of Christ. You can take heart because he's not finished with you yet that you're becoming more like Jesus as he becomes more the center of your life. So to close, I wanna to return to this question I asked at the beginning. When you think of someone who's wise, what do you think of? Can I tell you what I think of? I think of, <laughs> I think of this room. I think of men and women who are learning and who are, who, are, who are learning how to live into Christ being the center of your life. That's wisdom. It doesn't look like letters after your name. It doesn't look like a pithy saying that rhymes or has assonance or alliteration inside of it or any such thing. It, it, it looks like men and women living with Christ in the center, Christ in the middle, Christ on the throne, with Christ as Savior and Christ as Lord. I get to see that in this room. So, so my word to you is this, continue to allow and make room for, for those areas of your life to be exposed, but also continue to be encouraged as you see him continuing to shape and form you as you follow after him. So I'm gonna ask you just for a moment of focus and concentration, close your eyes, bow your heads. We're gonna pray. If you're here and you're a Christ follower, I just want you to take a little bit of time and lean into those two words. Man, where are you the center, the middle, on the throne of your life? Where are you mixing up who God is and who you are? And I wanna invite you to, to repent. I want to invite you to turn. I want to invite you to healing. I want to invite you to just bring that to the one who is with you. And think about the areas of your life. Where is Christ in the middle? Where is he in the middle where he's been for years? Oh, just rest in that. Where is he in the, in the middle that, that he didn't used to be, but he is now. And as you're living into that, man, it's not easy some days, but you know that it's worth it because you're walking in, in wisdom. Would you just rejoice? where Christ is in the middle. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, the first step in you becoming wise is coming to Christ. He cannot be your center if he is not your savior. 
so loved the world that he sent his son so that all who would believe in him might not perish, might not be separate, might not put themselves in the middle, might not be the one who is attempting to save themselves, but would come to the understanding of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that as he got up on the cross and took your sin from you, and then as he rose from the grave and gave his life for you and to you, that you would be dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ, so those areas where it seems like you could never move out of the middle, Christ says, the tomb is empty, I can be on the throne. The tomb is empty, it is possible. The tomb is empty, I'm here, come to me. This is invitation to you tonight. So take a few moments right where you are, however you need to respond. Either in prayer, evaluation, repentance, rejoicing, whatever it may be. Take a moment and then we'll sing.